0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well good morning Anchor, great to see you here this morning. My name's Matt. If I've not met you before, I would love to say hello after the service. I don't know what's happening with the screen there. It looks, you know when your, your printer has a, needs a head clean, it looks like the The text needs a bit of a head clean. I don't know how that works with the projector, but anyway, um, it's good to see you guys sitting in the front rows, uh, except for the sides. I don't know what's wrong with the front rows on the sides, but um, there is a verse in the Bible that promises better seats in heaven if you sit in the front row, if you realize that. So um, someone is missing out on a blessing here on these side rows. You guys, you're all in luck. Kenzo GC, well done. Just so you know, that's a joke. Um, That is complete heresy. There are no... Special seats in heaven. If you're visiting this morning, we do Value Truth and preach that here at Anchor. We, um, and we, we, we believe the Bible. So, and we're going to do that. I'm going to preach from, the God, from God's Word this morning. So if you have a, a Bible, keep it open at, uh, at Genesis 23, not 23, 32. I'm going to pray for us as we, uh, as we come humbly before God in His Word this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank You that You speak to us. We thank you that you're a God who has not remained silent, but has revealed yourself. And God, your character is mysterious and your ways are beyond our understanding often. And so God, I pray as we hear you speak to us this morning, that you would give us soft hearts to what you want to say. And God, I acknowledge that my words in and of themselves have no power or capacity to change anyone. And so we need you to turn up in power this morning. Holy Spirit, please work. Please move people from death to life. Please move people from self-sufficiency to dependence. God, we want to meet you in your word this morning. We pray that you would speak powerfully by your spirit. We ask it with great expectation. And all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Well, kids, kids, kids. I don't think my kids are here This morning I started this first service with a story about my kids and they happened to be in the service. But kids, right? You know what I'm talking about? Most of you don't because you don't have children. There's about three people that do have children. And you're all too fresh in your journey with kids to understand this. But perhaps you've experienced this second hand. But I don't know if you realize this, but raising children is about helping kids move from dependence to independence. It's about helping kids move from being entirely and completely dependent on their parents to being independent. The first real step of that is moving from breastfeeding to solids. You know, other than that, a child has been entirely dependent on their mother for all the sustenance that they need. And then slowly it moves from that to walking and then eventually to being able to put their own shoes on and tie their shoelaces and get dressed. You've got no idea how amazing that is as a parent to be able to say the words, put your shoes on, and they do it. It's incredible. It's, it's like you've won so much of your time and life back, honestly. So for the most part, parenting is about helping your children move from dependence to independence teaching them to be self-sufficient, teaching them to do things on their own, teaching them to be independent. But for whatever reason in our family, our second born Piper Grace Sparks, the journey has been the exact opposite. She came out literally fierce and feisty and independent, like She has wanted to do things that have just been well above her pay grade, well above her ability and well above her motor skills at the stage of life that she is in because she is always arguing with us about things like tying her shoelaces up. She can't even talk and she's arguing with about wanting to dye her own shoelaces and pick her own clothes for the day and make her own cereal and do everything herself, cut with scissors, pieces of paper and... Seriously, it's a bit of a health hazard at times. But our wrestle has been, how do we teach Piper to just be a little more dependent given that she lacks all of the abilities to do the things that she wants to do? Like almost every morning, it's a wrestle about who gets to make her breakfast and she wants to pour the breakfast out of the thing into the bowl. And if she does it, it's like, just cereal goes all over the counter, all over the kitchen floor. For whatever reason, with Piper, it's been the reverse journey. And as I've observed this journey that Tash and I have had with Piper, it kind of struck me that it seems to me that that so often is my own walk with God. That there's this wrestle with me about wanting to be in control of my own life. That I want to pour my breakfast, that I want to do my shoelaces, that I want to pick my uniform, that I want to chart my own course in life. And and really sometimes I'm acting much more like a stubborn toddler than I am a loved child of God in the care of a good God. It's often how we operate, is it not? We're fiercely independent people and yet what God requires of us is dependence, trust, faith. Well, this morning we're going to walk through this last little episode in the life of Jacob in Genesis 32 and 33. And we're going to see what God does for someone who has been for his whole life, fiercely independent, fiercely in control of the circumstances of his own life. Remember, this is the man who said God helps those who help himself and he takes control of events. He takes control over circumstances. He acts. He pursues his will. And we're going to see in a crazy encounter with God how God completely brings Jacob to his knees and teaches him a very tangible lesson about what it looks like to walk in dependence. About what it looks like to walk in dependence. And what I want us to see this morning as we observe through the story of Jacob, that it is better to limp with a blessing than it is to strut without one. It is better to limp with God's blessing, with God's favor, than it is to strut without it. So the story of Jacob has been one of mess, has it not? We just cast your memory back to the the very first episode we saw in Jacob's life. His life begins in the womb of his mother and he is wrestling with his older brother Esau. They literally quarrel and fight from the womb. Jacob's hand comes out first, but he ends up withdrawing his hand and his older hairy red brother Esau comes out first and by milliseconds Jacob misses out on the blessing of the firstborn. There is tension from the very beginning, and because of the fact that Jacob has come out grasping at the heel of his older brother, he gets given the name Jacob, which means deceiver, or the one who grasps at the heel, a Hebrew idiom for deceiver. And Jacob truly lives up to his name. His whole life has been one of manipulation and deception. We see the first episode of that as Jacob manipulates his older brother Esau for his blessing, his, his firstborn blessing, his brother comes in, he's been hunting, he's famished, he's hungry and Jacob takes this moment of weakness to pry that blessing out of his brother's hands and he exchanges that for a bowl of lentil soup. A little later on in Jacob's life, he ends up deceiving his own father, lying to his own father. In his father's weakness and blindness, Jacob walks in covered in goat's hair and wearing his brother's jacket and lies and says, I am Esau, your firstborn, and literally steals the blessing from Esau's grasp. That that act of deceit and malice has caused a huge divide in their family and Esau now wants to kill his brother and so Jacob has to flee and he runs from his family home. He runs from his father and mother. He runs from his brother Esau and he encounters God in the wilderness and in the wilderness he cries out to God, please God, if you will care for me, if you will provide for me, if you will look after me, I will worship you. And what does God do? He, he allows Jacob to find his uncle Laban's well and there at that well he meets the woman of his dreams, the beautiful Rachel. Jacob falls in love with Rachel and he desires to marry Rachel. He is so in love with her that he is willing to pay a dowry of the equivalent of seven years of hard labour to his uncle Laban in order to marry the woman of his dreams. But on the wedding night, what happens? The deceiver is deceived. Uncle Laban sneaks ugly old, Leah into the wedding tent that night and Jacob consummates the marriage with the woman that he didn't want to marry. And so he ends up having to work another seven years for his uncle Laban in order to win the woman of his dreams. And so he marries two sisters in a polygamous marriage and have two concubines on the side and the unfolding circumstances are a disaster. There is conflict, there is strife, there is competition between Jacob's two wives Jacob ends up being the father of 11 sons and at least one daughter. And God begins to prosper and bless Laban because of his presence. And Jacob thinks that it's time to go, but Laban doesn't want him to go. He says, God has blessed me because of you, name your price. So Jacob says, well, I'll tell you what, let's divide your flocks, your herds. I will take all of the ones with spots and speckles. You have all the pure ones. And Jacob begins to manipulate the breeding program in order to prosper himself. He becomes very wealthy. And in the middle of the night, Jacob decides that it's time to go. He convinces his two wives that it's time to go and they sneak off. They run from Laban in the middle of the night and they flee. They head back to their country. Now, as you look at the life of Jacob, you've got to admit it's a mess. It's full of deception and manipulation and deceit and lies and brokenness and competitiveness. It's, it's a complete mess. And so we get to... Chapter 32, and finally, after 20 years of mess for Jacob, more than that even, including his childhood, Jacob finally here. We get a little glimmer of hope. We get a little glimmer of obedience. We get a little glimmer of faith. Because back in chapter 31, God had said to Jacob, go back to your land, go back to the land of your father, to your kindred, and his promise is, I will will be with you. That was that was God's promise to Jacob and in chapter 31 verse 3. Go back to your father's land, go back to your kindred and I will be with you. And so as we turn the pages between chapter 31 and 32, we see Jacob take this step because it says in 31 in 32 verse 1, Jacob went on his way. Jacob went on his way. Now, they they sound like really insignificant words, right? It sounds like just a part of the story. Jacob went on his way, but that moment is a clear moment of Jacob beginning to obey God. God has said return, and Jacob's like, all right, I'll do it. I'm gonna listen to the voice of God this time. And he begins to take these steps of obedience. But there's an immediate problem with Jacob's Obedience, And the problem is the problem of his older brother Esau. Jacob has been away from the family home for 20 years. And he doesn't know what he's going to experience when he returns. And so this problem that Jacob encounters immediately after he takes his first step of obedience and faith is one that tests and challenges this newfound obedience that he has. Have a look at what happens in chapter 32, verse 3. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban, I've remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats and male and female servants, not to mention two wives, but now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you with 400 men are with him. You see, Jacob's problem is that he has fled from his brother, he's had 20 years of distance, and he doesn't know what he's going to expect when he returns. He doesn't know whether Esau has cooled in that 20 years or whether Esau has been stewing. And in Esau's mind, he believes that revenge is a dish best served cold. And in this case, 20 years, stone cold revenge. He doesn't know what to expect. So you imagine what's going through Jacob's head in that moment. Is Esau going to kill me? Is this the moment that Esau has been waiting for? He vowed that he would do it. Jacob is afraid for his life. And so the very moment that he decides to obey God, God makes makes things harder. You ever been in that situation where you're like, all right, this time, yes, God, I'm going your way. And you take that step and then you're like, hang on a sec, this got harder. It didn't get easier. That's, That's where Jacob finds himself. He has a problem. And his problem is his brother Esau. And so what does Jacob do? Jacob's faced with a choice. Jacob's faced with a decision. Will Jacob operate in his old ways? Or has Jacob's newfound faith found root in his life? And Jacob does something here in this chapter that is very uncharacteristic of him. Something that he's actually not done before, not at least to this extent. You see, Jacob is the deceiver, the manipulator, the one who makes the most of the situation, the one who takes matters into his own hands. And in this moment, Jacob does something Different. It seems that the 20 years in the wilderness has refined him. It seems that experiencing his uncle's deception has changed him. That that process, God has humbled him. Because Jacob does this, he, he prays. He prays. Very uncharacteristic. This is what Jacob prays. Have a look at verse 9. Then Jacob prayed. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have come, now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau for I am afraid. That he will come and attack me and also the mothers and their children. But you have said, God, surely I will make you prosper and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He's crying out to God. He prays. How often is prayer our backup, our last resort, our plan B? You know, we do all of the things that we could possibly do in our own strength. And then once we've exhausted all of our possibilities, then and only then do we turn to God and say, God, help, help me. We do that all the time. And and here is Jacob. And instead of doing everything he can, he turns to God first. He prays first. This is Jacob's first step from self-sufficiency to dependence. This is Jacob's first step from letting go of control of circumstances and saying, God, you're in control. I trust you with this. From independence to dependence. It's the journey that Jacob is on. And so he prays. He prays. You gotta remember, Jacob was in the wilderness for 20 years, right? 20 years of disobedience, of trying to run his own life, and finally he gets it. It's a good reminder, isn't it, that it's never too late to start with God. It's never too late to begin to take those first steps of faith and obedience towards him. Because God is patient. God has been waiting for Jacob, and God has a powerful encounter ahead for him to teach him the very thing that he's asking of him. But this is a good reminder that it's never too late. No matter where you are on your journey with faith, no matter how messed up you feel your life is, no matter how long you've been operating out of the default of self-sufficiency and I can do this, it's never too late to start with God. He is patient. And so Jacob prays, but he doesn't just pray. Because on this journey of refinement and sanctification, Jacob is still kind of working things out. Because he doesn't just pray, he also plans. Jacob has a plan. And his plan is to appease the wrath and anger of his brother. This is his insurance policy, right? He's thinking to himself if this prayer doesn't work, if God doesn't come through, then what? I know. I'll have a backup plan. At least it's in the right order, right? At least he's gone prayer first, then backup plan, right? Don't judge him too quickly because I know you all do this and I do this myself as well. Jacob has one foot in the camp of obedience, but he's also got another foot in the camp of self-sufficiency and he's straddling the two. Which one's going to work? He doesn't quite know. He doesn't get an answer from God at the end of that prayer. He just has to step out. He has to trust. And so he comes up with a plan. His plan is this. He hives off a little section of each of the um, cattle and flocks and herds that he has. And he sends our male and female goats and male and female animals with his servants. And he sends them ahead of his caravan of people traveling. And he says to them, When you reach my brother Esau, and he says, Whose are these? You say, These are yours. They're a gift from your brother Jacob. He, he's giving them to you as a gift. So Jacob sends the first group it's the goats. And then it's followed by the ewes and the rams. And then he sends male and female camels, each one. He distances them apart. And so as Esau comes, he has wave after wave after wave of gift and blessing coming towards him. And really, this is Jacob's way of saying, I stole your blessing and I'm trying to pay it back. And so the animals keep going, the camels, the cows and the bulls, and finally the donkeys. Now, I don't know why Jacob saw it fit to put the donkeys at the end. Because in my mind, I would have put the donkeys at the start and the, the best animals at the end. You put the cows and the bulls, you know, the, the prime grade beef at the end. There, you know, And the, the donkey, I mean, the donkeys should go at the front. I mean, maybe goats, then donkeys, whatever. I don't know why Jacob did that. Maybe Esau had a thing for donkeys. That is really beside the point. But Jacob has this idea, he's got a plan. And his plan is that he will pacify his brother. This is what he says in verse 20. This is his little plan. And to be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us for he thought I will pacify him with these gifts that I am sending ahead of him. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Jacob's plan is to pacify, to appease, to satisfy the wrath, the anger of his brother with gift after gift after gift after gift after gift. gift. Now the problem with Jacob is that this might seem You know, sure, we all do that. We all have one camp, one foot in obedience and one foot in self-sufficiency and independence. But the problem with that is that Jacob has just seen God's grace and mercy. You see, he ran off in the middle of the night, taking his wives, taking his children, taking Laban's daughters and Laban's grandchildren and taking all of his flocks. And he snuck off in the middle of the night. And Laban pursues Jacob and his caravan of travellers. He pursues them with his army and God rescues them. God intervenes. God says to Laban, do not say anything good or bad to Jacob. Don't do anything to him. I've blessed him. Let him go. God's already intervened. And when Laban turns up, they come to an agreement that they're going to go their separate way. Jacob has already seen the evidences that God is trustworthy, that his plans are good, that he doesn't need to strive. But here he is faced with the exact same scenario just a day later and he's still wrestling with this foot in both camps. One foot in trust and obedience. One foot in self-sufficiency and independence. And so God meets Jacob right where he is. That, that's what our God does. I don't know if you realise that. He meets you right where you are. And he, Jacob encounters God in a profound, profound way. Jacob prays. He says, God, I am scared to death that my older brother Esau is coming to kill me. Save me. Save me, God. And this is God's answer to Jacob's prayer. Have a look at chapter 32, verse 24. This is how God answers his prayer. And so Jacob was left alone. Jacob has passed over the Jabbok River. He sent all of his family, all of his servants, all of his cattle, the whole traveling party. They've crossed over the Jabbok River and Jacob comes back to the western side and he's alone. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then the man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he replied. The man said your name shall no longer be Jacob but Israel for you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said please tell me your name but he replied why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping Because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to his socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob was limping because of his hip. He encounters God and he leaves with a limp. And so Jacob prays. God, would you save me from my brother Esau? And what does God do? He turns up and he says to Jacob, Let's go. He, he picks a fight. He picks a fight with Jacob and then he dislocates his hip. You know, when um, these, this mysterious man is wrestling, and clearly Jacob perceives this is God, he, he calls the place Peniel. He says, I've seen God face to face and I survived. This is a miracle. Other Old Testament writers also comment on this account and they say that Jacob wrestled with God or Jacob wrestled with the angel of God. This is some form of theophany of God turning up in human flesh and wrestling with Jacob. And there is this, concealed nature of the identity of this man because of the darkness of the night. It's pitch black. They're in the middle of the desert. There's no torches. There's no lights. There's no Coleman little, you know, there's little camping lanterns that you could get. They're wrestling in the middle of the night. It's dark. And Jacob does not know who he's wrestling with, although he has a sense that he has wrestled with God. And as the sun begins to rise, the man says, I need to go because if you see my face, you will surely die. That's part of the logic of why he needs to leave at daybreak and Jacob refuses to let go and so he touches his hip and he wrenches his hip. He literally dislocates his hip. There's um, a favourite pastime in the Sparks household and that is wrestling. And it seems like the base activity of almost every game we play is just wrestling. It doesn't matter if we're playing uh, Transformers or animals or cars or footy, whatever it is, sometimes it's just straight up wrestling Generally, the game ends in some form of a wrestle or a rumble. Now, that's probably due to the fact I have a six-year-old boy and he loves to rumble and we live in a two-bedroom apartment and he's got a lot of energy. And so we we, we rumble a lot. We rumble in the hallway, we rumble in the lounge room. And Piper, she loves to participate in the rumble, but she never initiates it. Jude always initiates. Piper spies it from a distance. She decides she's going to join in, so she runs down the hallway as fast as she can, she jumps, she tucks her legs up, and she does what she calls the bomb drop straight onto my back and uh, participates in the rumble. And it's, it's fun. I love the rumbling. It always ends in tears, but it's still fun before that point. But at whatever point I want the rumble to finish, I can just stop it. Because for the whole time, I have not been wrestling with my full strength. I've been wrestling at the level of my kids but when I want to stop, I just stand up. It doesn't matter. They could still be hanging on to me. I just stand up and pry them off and put them on the couch and walk away. God has been wrestling with Jacob and he wants the wrestle to stop. And so at that moment, he literally just touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it and says, I'm done. Now normally at that point, my kids get they, they get that it's over because then comes the stiff arm and they get off me and shaking off the leg, right? Jacob just doesn't get it. He's clinging. He's clinging to this man for dear life. Despite the fact that his hip has been dislocated, he's clinging. Now, I don't know if you know much about the hip socket. It's the largest ball and joint socket you have in your body. And it is covered by a number of very strong muscles and tendons. Your hip flexors, your, your, your gluteus maximus minimus and medius, which is what you work on. You know, if you, you're doing your squats, you get glutes. There's a lot of muscle around your hip is what I'm trying to say. It's a very strong joint. Now, if you were to participate in mixed martial arts like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or or some form of UFC, there are a number of submission holds that you can put on your opponent in order to get them to tap out. And most of those holds are chokes around the neck. So you, you suffocate your opponent and they tap out. But there are also a number of submission holds where you can apply a certain amount of force or pressure to a joint in order to separate that joint and create extreme pain and get that person to tap out. Most of those submission holds are around the the elbow, the shoulder, the knee, the ankle, sometimes even the wrist. You apply force to those joints so that those joints pull apart and it's so painful, the thought of having that joint dislocate, the person taps out. God has literally applied a submission hold to Jacob, dislocated his freaking hip, and Jacob doesn't tap out. He's holding on for dear life. Why? I mean, he's spending all his energy and he's just about to go face his brother the next day. Why does he do that? Because Jacob sees in this moment the blessing that he's been longing for. And so he clings To the man. He clings to him and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob sees in that moment the blessing that he has been longing for his whole life, the blessing that he longed to hear roll off the lips of his father, the blessing that he pried out of Esau's hands. He sees in this moment the blessing that he has longed for in his family. God has it, this man has it. He realizes that he's wrestling with God. And he says, God, I will not let you go until I get a blessing from you. And so he clings. Now, I was kind of thinking about this encounter and thinking about all the other encounters that people have with God in the Old Testament. This is a bizarre encounter. right, Jacob prays, save me, O God. God picks a fight and dislocates his hip. All of the other encounters don't really work like that. You think about Moses, right? Moses, he encounters God in a burning bush, a bush that's on fire but doesn't burn up. And, and a voice from the bush says to him, take your shoes off, your sandals off, you're standing on holy ground. Or the encounters that Moses has on Mount Sinai as God delivers the law and speaks to Moses as if face to face. And Moses comes down and he's been so close to the glory of God that his face is shining and he has to cover it with a veil. Or where God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and passes over him and Moses catches a glimpse of the back of God's head and sees his glory and lives. What an incredible encounter. Or you think about the encounter that Abraham has with God. Abraham is camping in the desert and God turns up to his tent and says, let's have lunch. And so they have lunch. Or you think about the encounters that uh, other characters in the Old Testament had. Elijah, Elijah on top of the mountain. God says, go up there, I will reveal myself to you. And in front of Elijah's face comes this gigantic hurricane of wind and then this earthquake and then a fire and all you need is heart and you've got Captain Planet right there but God is in none of those things. God is in the silence, in this still, small voice. God appears, reveals himself to Elijah. Or Ezekiel sees a vision of the throne of God. Or Isaiah himself is beckoned and called by God and sees another vision of the throne of God and hears the voice of God himself and cries out, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. And God sends a seraphim to touch his lips with a burning coal to atone for his sins. Incredible, incredible encounters with God. And our boy Jacob gets in a wrestling match and has his hip dislocated. What is going on here, God? God. What are you doing? This does not make sense. In my mind, an encounter with God ought to leave you stronger and better with more faith, not weaker, not lame, not crippled. What is God doing? God is giving Jacob a lesson. A lesson in dependence. God's actually answering Jacob's prayer. Probably just not in the way that Jacob was hoping or anticipating that God would turn up. He's giving Jacob a lesson in dependence because Jacob says, I'm afraid that my brother is coming to kill me, and then God wounds him. Because at this point, if Jacob changes his mind of obedience, even if he wants to leg it and run, he's going to be limping the whole way and not getting far very quickly at all. This is a lesson in dependence that Jacob can't do this. He can't run, he can't manipulate. He has to trust that God's got this. He has to trust that what God said, God will do. I will be with you. I will prosper you. God is giving Jacob a very tangible lesson in dependence because literally every step that Jacob takes is a reminder that he can't do this. Every step that Jacob takes is a reminder that this is not on his strength. Every step that Jacob takes is a reminder that God is present with him. See, God is giving Jacob a lesson in dependence and he has taken Jacob's physical strength away from him. But what he will do is fill Jacob with spiritual strength. God had to empty Jacob first before he could fill him up. A lesson in dependence. This this encounter is a total paradox and biblical scholars have called this event crippling grace. Crippling grace. What a a beautiful paradox that is. That God's grace would come in the form of woundedness. That God's grace would come in the form of a dislocated hip. That God's grace would come in the form of an injury. Crippling grace grace. God literally brings Jacob to the end of himself. And this wound that Jacob has is God's mark of his presence with him. Because out of that, God blesses Jacob. The famous Welsh revival preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, says this. He asks this question. He says, what does the man look like who has truly encountered God? What does the man look like What does the woman look like who has truly encountered God? And his answer is, they walk with a limp. They walk with a limp. Or Francis Schaeffer further developed that phrase. He said, people who have encountered God walk with a victorious limp. I like that one, a victorious limp. Because God has emptied Jacob of his own strength, but he has filled him with a stronger faith. A victorious limp. You know, in our our culture we avoid discomfort like anything else. Do we not? I mean, how much of our world is set up to avoid discomfort, to avoid inconvenience, to avoid pain, to avoid trial, to avoid suffering. All of our life is about avoiding those things. And if anything, this story reminds us that pain and blessing are not mutually exclusive. That simply because you're walking through a trial does not mean that God has withdrawn His presence. That sometimes God is going to use that pain and use that trial to make you better, to strengthen your faith, to help you walk in a new way. Yes, maybe it's walking with a limp, but it's walking with a victorious limp because God has filled you with His strength. This story is a reminder that pain and blessing are not mutually exclusive. You think about the process of gold being refined and purified. The gold goes into the furnace. It goes into the fire. It experiences heat in order that the impurities are burnt off and what comes out the other end is a purer, more refined product than what what went in. And that's what we see happening in Jacob's story. He walks across the other side of the Jabbok River and yes, he's limping, but he has a more purified, stronger faith than what he had before he started. God has taught him a very tangible, clear lesson in dependence and what it looks like to trust in God. And so God challenges Jacob. He challenges him to a wrestle. But not only that, God also changes Jacob. Because in this encounter, as Jacob is clinging to God for a blessing, God asks him a question. He says to him, What is your name? Now, God's not asking that because he's unaware and doesn't know. He's asking that because the last time Jacob answered that question, what did he say? He lied. What is your name, my son? I am Esau, your firstborn father. This time, how does Jacob answer? He says, well, my name, actually, it's, it's Jacob. It's deceiver. It's manipulator. It's the one who clasps at the heel. And in this moment, God changes him. He says, you are no longer going to be known as Jacob. You, will, you shall be called Israel. For you have wrestled, you have struggled, you have strived with God and with people and you have overcome. You are no longer defined by this because with a new name comes becomes a new identity. And Jacob walks away from this experience a radically transformed person because he encountered God. And sure, the, transform, the transformation includes a limp. But he's a better Jacob than what he walked in. God has encountered him. God has actually answered his prayer, just probably not in the way that Jacob was hoping or anticipating. So God challenges Jacob. And God changes Jacob. And Jacob realises in this moment that he has had to learn to walk independence, that he has had to step back from self-sufficiency and independence, that he has had to put two feet in the camp of trusting God. Seems to me that this is a principle we see throughout scriptures because you come to the life of Paul, the great apostle Paul, who had one of the most profound encounters with God that you could possibly hope to imagine. The apostle Paul was caught up to the third heaven, whatever that is, I don't know what that is. He encounters God in an incredible way. And at the end of his experience, he is wounded by God. Have a look at what Paul says of his experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. This is Paul speaking. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in my flesh, messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness, with insult, with hardship, with persecution and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. The lesson that God taught Paul is that operating in his own strength, in his own self-sufficiency, is not the way that he will walk, but that he will walk with a thorn in his flesh, a physical, painful reminder that it's not about him. It doesn't matter how profound the encounter with God is. It doesn't make you any different because it's about what God has done in you. It's about God's strength in you. The lesson that Paul learned and the lesson that Jacob learned is the lesson that God wants to teach each of us. It's a lesson of learning how to walk in dependence on God. And it seems to me that this is the narrative of the Christian message, the good news of the gospel. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, His point of greatest strength also happens to be his point of greatest weakness. The weakest moment in Jesus' life is the moment where he is strung out, bleeding and naked on that cross, where nails are driven through his hands and his feet, where he is mocked and jeered by the crowd, where people call at him and say, if you really are the Christ, show us your power, come on down. In that moment of weakness, that's actually Christ's greatest, strongest moment as he empties himself to redeem the world. You see, as he exhaled life from his lungs, Jesus rescues the world, and Isaiah says it is by his wounds that we are healed. It is by the woundedness of Jesus. It's by the injury inflicted on Him on the cross that Jesus rescues us. The good news of the Gospel is learning to rest that it's not about our effort. It's not about our strength. It's not about your track record. It's not about your church attendance. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how often you read the Bible. It's not about any of that. It's about learning to depend on the finished work of Jesus. It's a lesson of dependence. Kind of reminds me of that great hymn that I think Charles Wesley wrote. He says, As I come to God, it's nothing in my hands that I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. I come empty-handed. I don't come with my strength. I don't come with my track record. I have nothing to offer God. I come with empty hands and simply cling to the cross of Jesus and cry, God, bless me. Bless me. Bless me. And His promise is that for those who have faith in Jesus that you have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. God is working a project to empty you of yourself, to bring you to the end of yourself only to fill you with His Spirit and give you a new strength that you never thought possible, a new way of walking that you never realised. And sure, it may come with a limp, but I've got to promise you that it is far better to limp with God's blessing than to strut without it. My guess is there are some of you here this morning who are currently in a season of trial. In a season of suffering, you're experiencing heat. You're in the furnace of life. And you're asking God, God, what are you doing to me in this moment? Save me, God. I need to be rescued from this circumstance. And maybe this morning, this story is a reminder to you that God is doing something in that circumstance that potentially is bigger than just rescuing you from it. He wants to teach you a lesson of dependence, of what it looks like to walk in a new way, with a new name and a new identity and to live that out and realise that. Perhaps some of you here this morning, you realise that your whole life is a life of you looking after you and you trying to control the circumstances of your life and you trying to work out your own justification of you trying to make sense of the meaning and significance in your life and you realise that you cannot do it. Maybe today is the day that you take your first step of faith, your first step of obedience and place your faith and trust in Jesus for the very first time. Wherever you're at on your journey, I promise you, God wants to meet you right where you are. And help you see that it is far better to limp with a blessing than to strut without it. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you are so committed to us. So committed that you would go to crazy lengths to relieve us of our own self-sufficiency. To bring us to the end of ourselves to help us see that we need you more than we care to admit. God, I pray for every person in this room this morning who is in the midst of a trial, of a wrestle, of a season of life where they're crying out to you, but they can't really see you answer. God, I thank you that you're in the business of meeting people and of revealing them to them a whole new way of walking. God, would you meet people where they're at today? And even if it means that you have to empty people of their own strength, would you do that, but only to fill them up again? We thank you for the life of Paul, that he didn't pursue weakness as a virtue, but pursued weakness only in so much as it filled him up with your strength. God, would you do that work in our lives today? Fill us, God. Free us from ourselves and help us to walk in a new way walk in a way of dependence, walk in a way of trust, walk in the way of faith. We need you for this. Please do it. We ask it for your glory. We ask it for our sake. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus and everyone who agreed said...